Hello and welcome to the NBA Next Podcast presented by Track. I am Scott Allen and I am joined by Keith Smith. We are here to talk about what is next financially in the NBA. Keith, we had some contract information drop yesterday from The Athletic. Zion Williamson's uh, contract information uh, no longer guaranteed in the last three years. Uh, the 24-25 season is 50% guaranteed right now. Any other information that you can provide uh, from a detail standpoint? Yeah, I, you know, Mike uh, Vorkna from The Athletic did a great job hunting this one down. This has been a famously hard contract to get details on because I think of the pieces that were in there that they were trying to protect uh, information on, whether that be for Zion or for the team or for whatever. So I think the best way to probably uh, really encourage people to look at this is go to Spot Track, pull up Zion Williamson, and then you'll see we've got all the details in there. Uh, for each season, so you're not going to get uh, bogged down and just listen to the numbers here. But uh, we'll we'll do our best on an audio uh, show here. But but do go check out uh, the contract on the site because it will I think make far more sense then. But the reality is this year, 34 million for Zion, fully guaranteed. Next season, 36.7. That is his cap number, his tax number. That's the number that, in a lot of ways, really matters. <clears throat> what happens with this is uh, Zion's contract is half guaranteed. So about 18 and a half million, if we'll just call it that. And what happens in that situation is if the Pelicans waived him today or any time up to January 7th of 2025, uh, they would only be on the hook for 18 million and change um, about half of his current contract. So, the only way the Pelicans save any money here, whether it be next year or years down the line, is if they waive Zion Williamson. I've seen some people, uh, including people who they cover the league, uh, really kind of misrepresenting what happened here with this contract. Uh, they're saying, you know, Zion doesn't get all his money. That's not necessarily true. Uh, there's been a lot of, well, Zion can earn more money. That's not really true either. Um, all it is is it's a guarantee. So if if we're you know sitting here, what would this be about five ish years from now? And Zion's contract ran in full, nothing changed. He would have got every dime he was getting from thirty four million this year to forty five million in the final season. So uh, what happens is if the Pelicans waive him, there are some savings. Now next year is a very simple one. It's half guaranteed then becomes fully guaranteed about halfway through the season. The year after that, in the following two years, those are the ones where it gets a little bit more complicated. So there's two two phases to this. If Zion meets uh, weight clauses, meets his check-ins on his weight in the prior year, he will uh, trigger about 20% of his contract each season. If he plays in half the games, that's another 40% or another 20%. Sorry. Um, then if he moves up, um, you know, another chunk, I'm sorry, that is actually, that gets him up to uh, uh, 40% is if he plays in half the games. If he plays in 51 games, that bumps him up to another 20%. So we'd be at a total of 80%. Then if he plays in a, remember, this is the prior season. If he played in 61 games or more, that gets him up to the full 100%. Or there's a date-based trigger, because there's always a date-based trigger on non-guaranteed contracts. That will trigger 
the in the middle of July ahead of the season that they are um uh going into. So he is in a spot where he has the ability to if he makes weight and if he plays games, he can push his guaranteed amount up. Otherwise, he is in a spot where his contract may not be fully guaranteed until we get to those dates. And of course, the Pelicans, they can always say, hey, we're going to guarantee it because he played in 60 games and we we sat him out a game if they wanted to, they could do that. Or he hits that date um, and that'll trigger it as well. But really important to remember, the only way there's any savings achieved by New Orleans or another team if they trade for him is if he gets waived. Yeah, so what does that mean for the Pelicans now? I mean, with, you know, there's been games where he is, you can tell he's out of shape. He's not able to finish a game. So what does that mean for the Pelicans now, uh, knowing this information is out in the forefront? Yeah, I don't know that it really changes anything. And I would hope it just being public certainly doesn't change anything for the Pelicans. I would hope they would uh, operate under, hey, we're going to do what we need to do, whether or not people know this is out there or not. The challenge is with the, the, well, it's not even a challenge. That's that's poor phrasing by me. The good thing is for the Pelicans is they're protected. If something happens and Zion just cannot play, right? He is just struggling so much and cannot get on the court. And there's no way the Pelicans can get out of this, you know, pretty free and clear uh, in a couple seasons. And that that's important. This is really no different than if we remember the Joel Embiid contract when he signed his, not the one he's currently on, but the prior contract, when he signed his rookie scale extension, he was in a position where that turned into for Joel Embiid, fine, because he played, he you know, played a lot of games, became a you know major uh, you know player and MVP in the league and all that. What ended up happening with uh, the 76ers was they didn't have to use any of the stuff that had triggered as far as his years being non-guaranteed or any of that stuff because he was available and he played. So that's the kind of important thing um, to remember with this. Jonathan Isaac of the Orlando Magic is in this boat right now as well. Uh, when the Magic signed him, they had games played triggers in there where if he didn't meet them, the final years of the contract became non-guaranteed. And now he doesn't actually have the language where he can kind of earn back those guarantees. Those uh, th- those are sitting there with, they're just non-guaranteed and the Magic could move on if they want to. But again, with all these guys, it only happens if they waive them. And it's hard with really any of these guys outside of, yeah, you cannot play anymore. Physically just cannot play seeing any of these guys get waived. Does this increase the likelihood that Zion could be traded in the future? I don't think so. I mean, I, any team uh, that was going to trade for him would have you know, done their due diligence and known that these uh, conditions exist. So I think it's, you know, this isn't a coming as a surprise necessarily to teams either. I don't think there, there might be a handful that were, Oh, that's interesting because they just weren't really in on him. I, I think it's the, I think for fans, it does, if he gets traded, it shouldn't come as such of a, such a surprise because you may see a team do one of two things. There could be either, hey, we think, which is the more likely, we think we can get him right and we think we can get him on the floor and he can be a productive player and all the things that go along with that. We see this all the time, right? Teams think, well, he won't get hurt here or 
he will he'll have a different role or whatever it may be. So that's a that's something that happens pretty regularly. The other thing that could happen is let's say we do get to a point. Let's say we're in the final year of this and he's forty five million dollars non guaranteed because he never met any of the uh, requirements. We could see a team say, all right, you know what? That's a way to do kind of a salary dump and we're, we're going to treat him as an expiring contract or money we can get off of. We can send the Pelicans a contract. We don't really want because maybe we're rebuilding or something like that. And that could be what we see. So I think this is one where there are worlds where this could matter at the end of the day. I don't think it's going to be a thing. I'm, I, I am far more confident, like 80, 90% that Zion will play out this entirety of this deal and get every penny that he has coming to him. I don't think we're going to see him get waived at any point. Last question I have is if he were to be traded, all the rules and stipulations with the contract that you just laid out, those would transfer uh, to another team, correct? Yep. None of these things are Pelican specific. These are all Zion Williamson specific, and it's even called out, um, you know, the team. Like in these contracts, that's generally how how they write it is because they don't want to come back. Uh, hey, whoa, you wrote the Pelicans, uh, even though he entered into the contract with the Pelicans. Every every deal in the NBA, you know, has clauses that are known that they can be traded. Um, so that's that's it. So everything we talked about there, everything you're gonna go look on Spot Track and see all these details and all that stuff. You're gonna you're gonna know that Zion Williamson is in a spot where. Any of this stuff applies, whether it's with the Pelicans or, you know, the Jazz or the Magic or the Celtics or whoever. It's, you know, whatever team he's on uh, in the NBA, all of these things still apply. The Cleveland Cavaliers are in the seventh seed as of this morning, and they have lost some key players to injury. Ricky Rubio is not with the team due to uh, some personal uh, in, uh, personal stuff going on in his life. Uh, you did a piece for us, short-term roster options for the Cleveland Cavaliers last week. Um, where do you want to start with this, Keith? The the Rubio situation, the the injury situation. Where, which way do you want to go first? Yeah, I think it's important to probably start with the injury situation first, just because I think that's kind of maybe informing some of the Rubio uh, situation here from the Cavs side. So. Uh, Cleveland lost Evan Mobley. Uh, he's going to be out. He's the longer term injury. I believe it was six to eight weeks uh, after a knee surgery was done. He had already missed about a week of action uh, prior to that. So by the time it's all said and done, it'll probably be closer to the nine, 10 week range um, before Mobley plays again, because that's always, you'll know, have to know that six to eight weeks before he's reevaluated and really kind of maybe starts ramping up to play. And that's probably going to be a week or two of, get back in the gym, practice, and ramp back up. So that's one thing. Then Darius Garland uh, broke his jaw, and he's going to miss, it sounds like, about a month's worth of games. So now these are all a week old at this point, so we're already a week into this. But the Cavs are, they're hurting at guard because it was Garland. Donovan Mitchell's actually been out, too. He's dealing with uh, some soreness, so he he has also missed a couple games here. Uh, but you've got... They're down to it with guards. It's Craig Porter Jr., who's one of their two-way players. He's a good two-way player, and he saw it. He probably uh, would be on the active roster already if there was not a thing we'll talk about here in a couple minutes. Um, 
that's probably preventing that. So that's that's one Karis LeVert who's more of a wing but can do the ball handling. That's kind of it for healthy ball handlers for the Cavs until Mitchell gets back in the fold. So that's where what we looked at in the piece is, all right, do they go for some front court help? Because they're also a little bit thin up front. It's really kind of Jared Allen and then Tristan Thompson are really the only two bigs that are playing uh, regularly. George Niang can play the four or five, but he's, he's, he's not your traditional type of big. So, so they're, they're hurting both kind of, kind of at the, the poles of, of the roster up front. And then in the backcourt, they've got a lot of wings and they're just playing a little smaller and playing a lot of those wings and doing kind of their thing right now with that. So that's kind of where they're at. So the piece, we're not going to spend a ton of time, but I went over, all right, what do you do internally? Do you just play some more guys, uh, more minutes that, that you already have on the roster? Do you activate the two-way players for even more games? Uh, do then I looked at, you know, are there G league call-ups that make sense, or maybe a couple free agents that are floating out there. The one challenge for Cleveland is we're still about two weeks from a 10 day contract starting. So they can't really just jump in and grab a guy on a 10 day. They don't have enough guys out to get into a, a hardship exception, uh, you know, for that, like, like we saw Memphis have earlier this year, they did it. They would need uh, a minimum of four players to be out, to be able to do that. Then the league would also say you also have an open roster spot, so maybe fill that first um, with this. So that would be the other challenge. So I looked at those, and then I looked at, you know, could there be trades? Now this is where Rubio enters in. Is that where you want to go next? Yes, let's go there. All right. So Ricky Rubio, $6.1 million contract for this season. Next season is $6.4 million, guaranteed about $4.3 million. So uh, a little bit of uh, savings there next year if a team were to waive Rubio. Rubio has not been with the Cavs all season. We found out over the summer he did not play in the FIBA World Cup with Spain. Uh, he's been out. There is some mixed reporting. I, I don't really want to get too deep into it beyond what we know is he's dealing with a personal issue. There's been some that have said that's him, and there's others that have said it's a family issue. I don't really know. I'm not sure what to believe with any of that stuff. We just know he's out, and it is important to note he's out with the full support of the Cleveland Cavaliers. This is not a Ben Simmons situation where there's fines or anything like that. The Cavaliers have said, take care of whatever it is you need to take care of. We'll figure it out later. Now, the questions with Rubio are, he is, let's see, if I'm doing my math right, he's 33 now. Um, he's had injuries in his career. There's a question to, is he going to play again? So one of the things that's been uh, floated, I believe, was Sham Sharani reported this, uh, is Rubio and the Cavs have discussed, do we do a buyout? You know, do we do a straight waiver? Um, you know, what could that look like? And then he also mentioned, which is something I mentioned in the article, could there be a trade? Now, that feels uncomfortable. It feels a little gross because we're in a spot where ah, this guy's away from the team dealing with obviously a serious situation, and you're going to trade him. But there is some precedent here with the Cavaliers and with Ricky Rubio. Uh, Rubio, when he tore his ACL a couple of seasons ago, they traded him off to the Indiana Pacers uh, for Karis LeVert. Now, the, the Pacers got paid in a draft pick. So that's how they they were you know fine to take on Rubio's contract because they moved Levert out for for the draft um, uh, equity, but and then the, the year ended Rubio's contract ended and Rubio resigned with the Cavs. I want to pause here because this comes up a lot. People are like, how did he resign with the Cavs? They you know they traded him. You know I thought there was a year long waiting period. That's only if the player is waived. If the player's contract just expires, 
they're a free agent. They can return back to where they had been traded from. If they were waived, there is that waiting period that does trigger. So we're in a spot with uh, Rubio where what we see ultimately is the Cavs and Rubio, they're probably going to part ways here eventually. And it could be via a buyout. And then, you know, they buy him out. And I know some will say, well, then, you know, is he going to pop up on another team? Maybe, but it doesn't seem overly likely. And then the other option is that they put him into a trade and that's how they go about trying to get a little bit of roster help here. I think they would prefer probably that second option, if I'm being quite honest, because then they don't have any dead money on the books. And why that's important, what I referenced with why they probably haven't just called one of the two-way guys up or done a signing. Cavs are only 752000 under the luxury tax. They really do not want to go into the tax if they can avoid it this season. So that's why they don't want to just buy Rubio out and then leave that, that you know, whatever, you know, $4 million, $3 million, whatever he agrees to in a buyout as dead money on the books. They would rather uh, use that, that salary to go get somebody who can help them. While, you know, in addition, you know, maybe that trade expands and some other money is moved or something because the Cavs just, you know, we, we know at this point they, they're, did that, they know they're not true title contenders right now at the moment. And I think they're looking at it and saying, yeah, we don't really need to be uh, going into luxury tax for this team right now today, um, especially, you know, and down the line, they they're going to have to re-sign Evan Mobley. They're probably going to want to do something with Donovan Mitchell. We'll see. Um, then that, that's kind of where it's all at for Cleveland. Besides Rubio, is there anyone else on the roster that is quote-unquote tradable? And what other players in the league could the Cavaliers trade for that would be an immediate help? Yeah, the the first part of your question is is a good one and it's a fair one and it you know leads to Donovan Mitchell and that's where everybody kind of went with the injuries popped up is is it time to trade you know Donovan Mitchell now here's your thing with trading Mitchell is we're only a year and a half into this relationship and you would basically be saying yeah it's not going to work and admitting yeah, he's probably leaving as a free agent. So I think that one's probably a summertime thing at the earliest, because I think what the Cavs will do is they'll get into the summer and they'll sit with Mitchell and his reps and say, Hey, where are we going long-term here? This one very much mirrors Darren Fox. We talked about on the last show and I wrote about a couple weeks ago. Um, their, their contract situation is very, very similar to each other's. And what happens is the, the the standard veteran extension just doesn't really make sense. So they hold out and say, hey, if I make all NBA, I can be a super max guy. So we may see a spot where Mitchell may be looking at, hey, I, I'm not doing it here. So let's, you know, get me moved on to somewhere else. And that that would open up a whole world of other options. And that's quite honestly far too big to discuss. Today's world, if they wanted to trade Rubio, they to be clear with some of these guys, they may need to throw one more guy in for salary matching purposes and that. But a couple point guards and ball handlers that they could look at are guys like Alec Burks of the Pistons, Jordan McLaughlin of the Timberwolves, Monte Morris of the Detroit Pistons, or um, uh, TJ McConnell of the Pacers. Pacers one's a little harder because that's a um, uh, in-division trade between two teams that are kind of chasing each other. So I don't know that that... One would necessarily happen, but the others are, you know, Burks and Burks. What 
0.0 on a Pistons team that is just wretched. They lost a 25th straight game last night um, as we record this on Friday morning. Um, Morris hasn't played yet this year due to injury, but sounds like he could be returning somewhat soon. And then Jordan McLaughlin is a very, uh, you know, cost, uh, you know, uh, effective player where you could just trade for him and get him very easily. And then what happens in that situation is, uh, you'd be, you know, kind of set in a spot where, all right, we're, we're doing okay. And maybe we even cleared a little bit of tax clearance up front guys that are, you know, uh, available. Mo Bamba is on a minimum deal. Uh, with the Philadelphia 76ers, doesn't really play a lot. If they wanted to go there, that could be be a thing. Uh, Sandro Mamu Kelashvili uh, of the San Antonio Spurs. Um, he, he is another guy, veteran minimum deal. Big guy can do some stuff, could potentially help them um, there. Then you've got the uh, Andre Drummond of the Chicago Bulls. 3.4 million. Mike Mascala of the Washington Wizards, 3.5 million. Those are guys that are pretty easily acquirable at those numbers and could very much step in and help Cleveland right now up front. Then you get to a couple guys that are a little bit more expensive. Kelly Olynyk and the Utah Jazz. It's widely expected. The Jazz are going to be very active at the trade deadline, especially with some of the guys that are uh, hitting expiring status. And then P.J. Tucker of the Clippers is a guy who just seems to be very available because he doesn't play. Uh, for the Clippers, so that would be someone that I think, you know, they could potentially look at there. And those numbers aren't so big. Linux at twelve million, Tucker's at about eleven million. Those guys are not in a, a spot where the numbers are so impossible to match on. Uh, they, 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 you know, it's not even worth talking about. So we're we're in a spot where right now they're holding tight. They're they're not doing anything today, and maybe that's what the Cavs do. Maybe the Cavs just say we're going to go. What they will run into eventually with Craig Porter Jr. Last place where we want to talk about about this part is they will run into he will hit his max of two way games. Uh, players on two way contracts can only be active for up to fifty NBA games. That is not games played. That is on the active roster. He's already got a handful of games where he was active but did not play in the game. So those, you know, in retrospect, you're like, man, we kind of wasted those ones. Um, but you will run into that eventually. And that will be, you know, potentially a challenge uh, down the line. So that's something that Cleveland's going to have to kind of think about of, you know, how do we want to approach this with a guy like Craig Porter Jr. And one other factor with him, he's on a two-year two-way contract too. So converting him now, you'd probably want to get him on a multi-year conversion. So that way you feel a little bit better about, hey, at least this guy who we really like and feel like could be something for us, at least we've got him in the fold for a little while longer. All right, let's wrap this uh, section up with uh, what would you do, Keith? You watch the Cavs, you watch the rest of the league. If you are the Cavs knowing what they have in front of them right now and you had to you know, pull the trigger on something, what would you do? Yeah, I'd, I'd try to make a trade with um, Rubio's salary, see if I could go get somebody who fits you know, a little bit better. I, I, I feel like they may be looking at – another guard more than a big it feels like they're okay with hey we'll go a little bit smaller that they've been one of the teams that plays really big up front with Mobley and Allen who many think of as kind of two centers it's kind of them and the the Timberwolves that play that big at the four and the five um so I, I think you know get another guard get another ball handler in there the list of guys I mentioned there could be people I'm not even thinking about that they might be interested in or maybe a team has put out there to other teams hey we're open to moving this guy so I I would not look to do anything huge um, just a small trade that gets us a little bit of depth 
gets us through this rough period. And then, you know, even then we still have another month to reevaluate where everything stands going into the trade deadline, but a Mitchell trade, all that stuff that I would, would hang on. I wouldn't do any of that. Keeping up with the injury talk here, Mitchell Robinson is out long-term, most likely the remainder of the season. The, Knicks have put in for a disabled player exception. So this is going to bring in our NBA 101. What is a disabled player exception and how can it be used? Yeah, so a disabled player exception, how this comes up, and, and there's a couple things to that are really important to know with it is it is a salary cap exception. So it is very similar to the non-taxpayer mid-level or the biannual exception or even the veteran minimum exception in that it is a signing exception it is not a roster exception you do not get a roster spot uh with this so the knicks can't all of a sudden add a 16th player uh, because of this that that's a hardship exception we just talked about that a little bit and for those you have to have several players out and they have to be out for a period of at least a week with uh more lengthy absences expected beyond that so in this case mitchell robinson's at 15 point seven million so what would it what will happen is the uh, knicks have the the ability to petition the league they will get a um about a 7.7 ish million dollar um disabled player exception if the league through an independent panel finds that mitchell robinson is more likely than not to miss the rest of the season and that's really the rest of the season is a little bit of a misnomer because they call it through june 15th why it's june 15th i don't that doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know why they don't just push it, call it the rest of the season, but they do. So if an independent uh, physician says, yeah, he's probably not coming back this year and teams rarely will apply for these unless that is the belief. Then what happens is um, if that, that physician agrees, the NBA will grant it. Now how a disabled player exception can be used is very restrictive. It is meant to replace that player for the rest of this year. So what happens is they would say, Knicks, you have this, you know, let's call it $7.8 million uh, disabled player exception, whatever that ends up working out to, um, total money there. But you've got $7.8 million. You can do one of three things. You can either sign a player, you can trade for a player, or you can claim a player off waivers. The, the all three, though, have the same restriction on them. That player has to be on a one-year contract. And it cannot be a one-year contract with an option after it or anything like that. It has to be one year. That is it. Because, again, the idea of this is, all right, you lost your guy for this year. We're going to let you try to replace them for the remainder of this season, and you can go. Now, the disabled player exceptions are um, – it's that amount. So you, they've got to fit within that amount. Either you sign them up to the $7.8 million, or their contract fits in there. And unlike a trade exception, which if you have a $20 million trade exception, you could trade for a guy who makes $15 million and a guy who makes $5 million and be good. Disabled player exception can be only used to acquire one player and one player only. So the Knicks couldn't go acquire somebody who makes $4 million and another guy who makes $3.8 million and get them both. I also said there's no roster spot. So if you acquire somebody, you're going to have to waive somebody to open up a roster spot to fit that player into. There's also no luxury tax savings. The Knicks, as it stands today, about $2.7 million under the luxury tax. So if they went and used this disabled player exception to sign somebody to, let's say, $7.8 million, uh, they 
they are up and over the luxury tax. This is strictly a signing exception to allow you to replace the player, um, but you cannot you know, exceed any of the other stuff. All that still is in play in all those things uh, with that. The Knicks are also, you know, I should be very clear, they're only about $4.6 million under the hard cap, too, so that's a further uh, restricting factor on them. They, they wouldn't be able to exceed that. So really, they get granted this. They can use about $4.6 million of it. Now they could make a trade where they send money out and bring a guy back in via this exception. That would be fine. But it just gives them a chance to maybe bring in somebody else for a little bit of roster help. Trade exceptions they have for a year. How long do uh, disabled player exceptions last for? Yeah, not as long. Those will run out on um, – let me make sure I get the date right on this. The disabled player exception expires on March 10th um of the season so it's really designed around are right, you got through the trade deadline buyout season has happened go use this and if you don't use it then off it goes uh and i didn't say this before but a disabled player exception the value of it is set at one half of the player who is out salary up to the equivalent of the uh, non-taxpayer mid-level exception so this year that that is 12.4 million or so. So what happens is you could use up to $12.4 million, but in this case, Mitchell, half of his salary is about $7.8 million. So in looking at the Knicks roster, they do have a few players on non-guaranteeds. I'm sure that they could make some, you know, roster trades to, you know, make some moves. What is the likelihood that the Knicks, if they are granted the disabled player exception, use it? I mean, from what I can remember with transactions, it seems that teams get them, but it's very rare that they even use them. So is, are the Knicks just going to be, are they just going through the motions because that's what they need to do? Yeah. I always say this is the equivalent to uh, if you're going out to do a project and you're bringing your toolbox, you throw in maybe a couple different kinds of screwdrivers and pliers and wrenches just in case, because you don't want to get all the way to the work site and then not have the tool you need. So you add the tool to your toolbox and then you just kind of have it there. And if you want it to use it or you need to use it, you can. Um, there's no harm in, in petitioning for it and getting it. It doesn't add any salary to the books just to have the exception itself. It only matters if you use it. So I, I would say if they're going to use it, it'll probably be much, much, much closer to the trade deadline um, that they'll, they would use it. It could be used then. It could be used to sign a player. For example, when Gordon Hayward broke his leg on opening night uh, in his very first game with the Celtics, they got a disabled player exception. And then the Celtics held on it and held on it and held on it. And then they ultimately finally used it um, very, I believe it might even been after the trade deadline. And they signed Greg Monroe for the rest of that season after he'd been bought out uh, after getting traded. So, that's just kind of where that's at. So I don't think you'll see the Knicks, if they do use it, I think it'll be quite a while before they use it. Um, just because it's not something that I think they're going to be jumping all over right now. They did move and get Taj Gibson uh, to come in. Uh, Tom Thibodeau favorite there, and he's already playing minutes uh, for them because not only did Mitchell Robinson go down, but Jericho Sims, who was their their third string center. He also went down. He's going to miss a couple weeks with a sprained ankle. So, uh, yes, yeah, so we're in a spot where they, they're a little thin up front. 
but no real pressure to feel like we got to move move on something right now. This was probably let's request this. They know it takes generally a week or two to get there, and then you kind of go go from there. All right, we posed some question uh, posed a uh, couple tweets out there looking for some mailbag questions this week as we go into the holidays. So we've got a, a handful here, Keith, to to throw at you, and we'll see where we go from there. Uh, first question we have here is. Have you started seeing teams behaving or operating differently with this new CBA in hand? Yeah, in ways, though, I think we didn't necessarily expect. Um, we saw the the NBA gave kind of a get your books in order um, transitional period of about a year uh, with this. So they really kind of put it at, hey, we're going to give you super expensive teams. We're going to give you a year to kind of make trades and do your business as far as signings and extensions and all that stuff before we're going to really start hammering you with the full extent of what it means to be a second apron team. So I think what we saw was the Golden State Warriors, great example, right? They traded away Jordan Poole. His long-term money took back Chris Paul, who doesn't have that same kind of long-term money, gave themselves more flexibility. But then we saw teams like Phoenix and Boston in Milwaukee say, cool, let's load up right now because we won't be able to do this in you know a year from now. Let's make all these trades uh, today under the current rules that we can make. And then a year from now, it'll be tougher or, you know, uh, if not tougher, completely impossible to do these kind of things. So let's kind of go in that direction. So that is a spot where I think um, what we're going to see with the um, the teams is, they're just going to kind of keep figuring the stuff out. And then next year, we'll probably, by next year, I mean like starting this summer, maybe we'll see a little bit of this at the trade deadline. We're going to start seeing teams really, I think, get into a position where it is, all right, now we're really playing under the new rules. There's no more of this. All right, load up now because we can't a year from now. We're all you know, in the new new world. And then we'll start to get a sense of how they're treating that then. What will the fate of overperforming veteran minimum players be with no cap space available, uh, like a Kogi or Derek, Do- Derek Jones Jr.? Yeah, guys like that are in an interesting spot because some of them are very much going to be seen as their minimum guys. Like they're playing well, but they're still minimum players. Um, you know, a couple of these guys, that's, that's the type of contract they've been on for a couple of years now is a minimum contract. Um, So some of those players will still be minimum guys, but we do see sometimes minimum players play themselves out of a minimum deal and into a bigger deal. Dennis Schroeder is a good example. Uh, He did that. Uh, Ultimately, he played himself into a mid-level deal uh, with the Toronto Raptors. Uh, We've seen Reggie Jackson play himself off a minimum and into a, a $5 million contract with an option season with the nuggets. So, so I think what we could see with some of these teams is, all right, we're in a spot where it's going to be, all right, how do we get there? Right? Like, like how do we get some of these guys into these positions where, you know, we can't afford them, but more often than not, the teams aren't going to stress too much about it. Cause like the teams are going to look at it as they're a minimum guy. And every year there's 50 players that sign for the minimum or more. And we'll just go get somebody else to replace them if that's where we need to be, especially if these teams are good teams. They'll always be able to get some veteran that will come in and say, yeah, I'll sign on for, you know, two, three million for this season and play it out with you. 
Do you think the Kings will be able to re-sign Malik Monk at his max, or is his value too high and will have to go to another team? Yeah, Malik Monk's in a very, very interesting situation because um, he signed for relatively little uh, in, in his two-year deal with the Kings. And this year he's at about $9.9 million. The Kings, because it was only a two-year deal, they're only going to have early bird rights on Malik Monk. So that turns into, all right, how much can they um, really extend him for? So what ends up, or extend or resign? They can't extend him, but resign him for. So that turns into a number that is, it's just not very big. You know, this is a number that is, you know, much uh, smaller than I think ideally they, they would like it to be. Um, you know, they're in Sacramento, so that, that's going to be a little bit of a challenge um, there is, you know, can we get him on that, that lower number? I'm not going to go too deep in detail because we've, Scott knows this, uh, but all you listening, I'm going to write about Malik Monk and the Kings um, kind of bigger overall picture um, soon. So I don't want to step all over that article I'm going to write, um, nor bury everybody in a whole bunch of numbers. But one thing I will say. He seems very happy there. He has a great role there. He's really kind of uh, taken off as a player in Sacramento. I think there the uh, potential exists for this to be like a Bobby Portis situation where what the Kings do is they re-sign him to a one-plus-one deal for the most they can give him this summer. Then in the summer of 2025, he opts out again, becomes a free agent. Now they have his full bird rights. And then they work out of whatever they, they agreed to as a fair value long-term contract. Where that could get a little sideways, it's a very weak free agent class. Malik Monk could be a guy that teams are like, hey, Malik Monk, like we, we're ready to go. Well, we're going to give you, you know, $20 million right now. And if that's where that goes, then the Kings are going to be in a really difficult spot because there's just no way they can come close to matching that. How do front offices put together trade packages that follow every rule in the NBA? Do they manually check everything or do they use a program or an online trade machine? Yeah, um, most of them have their own internal um, trade checkers that they have built. Some of them work with uh, you know companies that provide that, that software and information to them. Um, but they, you can be assured that they do go through and make sure they're following every rule because what happens is when a trade is agreed to and two teams agree, they contact the NBA and they set up what's called a trade call. And then in that trade call, uh, someone from the NBA, someone from the Players Association, and then the teams sit down and they go through literally every facet of the trade. So it's, all right, you're acquiring this player at this salary. And then it basically is, you know, we're going to go through all this. We're going to go through our you know, medicals going to be required. Have you exchanged medicals? Where is that at? Um, do you understand that this player is a trade bonus and all that? And then the NBA, while that is happening, is running everything just like the teams hopefully did before they got in that call. It basically saying, uh, yeah, this all works. It's good and we're good to go and we're going to approve the trade. Or they'll tell the team, uh, hey, your salary matching doesn't work or you're trading for a draft pick that's ineligible to be traded or something along those lines. And then what they do is they basically say, all right, we're ending the call, go back and fix it, and then come back to us when you're ready uh, to discuss the trade you know, in more detail and get it figured out. So what ha where that gets really messy is on trade deadline day because trade deadline day, we, we know what it looks like if it's a good one. 
we're going to get a flood of trades, especially a flood of trades starting about you know noon or one Eastern that lead up to the 3 p.m. Eastern trade deadline. And then what happens is basically the team say, we have a trade. And the NBA will say, great, you're, you're ready for your trade call. You're going in the queue. And then what that means is they put you in the queue. And then when it's time, you need to run through everything. And you better have it right then because let's say by the time they get to your call, let's say it's 4 o'clock. By the time they actually get to your your call, you cannot fix it. If there's something wrong, you can't go back and fix it because you're past the trade deadline. So that's that's the one day where it gets kind of crazy. If a team makes a trade today, whatever, no big deal. If something's wrong, you've got plenty of time to sort through it and get it fixed. So that gets uh you know super messy though on trade deadline day. And I do know of stories and of teams that are like we prefer to be uh done with our trades a little earlier in the day. So that way we're not sitting there waiting in the queue and then something comes up and all of a sudden we don't have a way to rework it or get out of it or anything like that. Which leads us into the next question of thoughts on what the jazz do between now and the trade deadline. Yeah, I think they're going to be active. They're they're expected to be a team that is really looking at some stuff. Last year's Utah jazz season was definitely an outlier. They were not as good as it seemed like they were a year ago. Um, that team is um, in a spot where they are, um, they are, they, they, they just played over their heads for, you know, three quarters-ish of a season or so, and then really kind of slipped out of the play-in picture. And then this year they're playing more like what I think most people expected, which is a rebuilding team that is, you know, they're on their way and they've got uh, really good pieces and they've got great draft picks and everything else. So they're just kind of on their way. So in this case, with the um, with the Jazz, their situation is interesting because what we're looking at with them is you've got some guys like Kelly Olynyk. Talon Horton Tucker, uh, maybe even Chris Dunn or Sabani Fontecchio, those guys are on expiring contracts. So those are guys that they, maybe they're not a part of the future anyway. So you could see guys moving. One thing I could say for certain is, you know, because there were rumors about Laurie Markkinen. Could the Jazz look to trade Laurie Markkinen and really start really adding to, to their base, even though he became an all-star and he's their best player? I will say this about Danny Ainge. If Danny Ainge looks at it and says, Laurie Markkinen is not going to be a part of whatever the next great Utah Jazz team is, he will trade Laurie Markkinen. Without a doubt, he will move on and trade him and go. Um, if that's what he feels, he will not worry about that in the slightest and he will, will move on. Now, if he feels like Laurie Markkinen's a guy we're, we're building around and we believe he's going to be a big part of whatever the next really good jazz team is. He'll keep them, but Ainge doesn't get, he's not going to get swayed by the fact they made an all-star team last year. He doesn't get sentimental. He's going to have a real kind of just base of, yep, not, not really what we think he's going to be. Let's move on. Or we don't feel like we can get him on a contract that makes sense for us down the line or anything like that. So, so he's definitely somebody we're going to have our eyes on here. Uh, over the next, what, what we get about a month and a half ish to go till the trade deadline. So we'll we'll be really kind of keeping an eye on uh, on the Jazz and also Laurie Markkinen. But they, I do expect to see them be very active at some point during the course of this trade deadline. Who do you see as likely trade targets for the Celtics? And they suggest maybe Isaiah Stewart. Yeah, the Isaiah Stewart stuff came out from a report. The challenge is Isaiah Stewart is poison pill provision 
um, restricted. So what that means is he makes $5.3 million this year. Then he has a four-year $60 million contract extension uh, that kicks in next year. So guys on rookie scale, the reason the NBA does this is they don't want you basically signing them to an extension with the intent of trading them later um, on that extension. So what happens is he counts as $5.3 million outgoing for the Pistons, but then he counts as the average salary, which is about $13 million uh, on the incoming team. So it just becomes very hard for a team to match salary on that because of the imbalance, because you're sending the Pistons back more money than they may be able to take back. And you're taking in more money than you may be able to take, take in necessarily with the little salary you had to send out. So for the Celtics specifically, $13 million is a little bit of a big number because that means either Peyton Pritchard or Al Horford realistically would need to be traded. And that's probably not something they're doing for a guy like Isaiah Stewart. I think what's more likely is it's going to be either be a smaller move. I think guys who make $6 million or less, they have a $6 million trade exception. Um, so I think that will be... Maybe a way that they use it is a $6 million trade exception, and then they go get somebody through that uh, process. Um, or they maybe pile together a couple of their minimum contracts and go get somebody who makes five, $6 million. That could be a thing. Or the other option is they just wait it out and then see who becomes available buyout season, and we'll get somebody. Their challenge in buyout season is the player has to make less than the uh, – equivalent of the non-taxpayer mid-level which we said earlier is 12.4 million because any team that's over the second apron and the celtics are way over the second apron um you can't sign a player actually anybody's over the apron period this is i should say they'd say it better that way um but they are in a spot where it, they, they cannot sign a player who makes more than that 12.4 non-taxpayer can you explain the stockton king's obtaining Chris Dunn's G League rights while he's still playing for the Utah Jazz. Yeah, they're two completely independent things. So what will happen is sometimes uh, G League rights get traded for a few different reasons. One is we're trading them just in case. You know, maybe the player gets moved and then we'll we'll get them later. Uh, the other option is it's the um, summertime and we sign the player to an Exhibit 10 contract and they played for, I don't know, the main Celtics the year before. But as the Stockton Kings, we really want that player, um, you know, this year. And the Kings are signing him to an Exhibit 10. So in order to get him, we need to trade for his G League rights. So they do that. The other times the G League rights just kind of get thrown into a trade. Where what happens is, this is much like in the NBA, both sides have to give up something. So let's say Stockton is giving a real player to another team. Um, they then what they can do is they could then say, all right, just give us the G League rights back to a guy. Uh, Chris Dunn, obviously, he's on the Jazz. He's not going to be in the G League probably anytime uh, coming this season. So Stockton's just, you know, hey, we got him. And then if, if something happens later, we'll have his G League rights. But otherwise, it's probably more of a, hey, we need to get something in a trade, and that's what was thrown our way. Last one's not so much financial, but we'll we'll – throw it in here since the they asked it in your estimation which teams have been contenders and which ones have been pretenders this season so far um i would say in the east there's three boston milwaukee and philadelphia 
Uh, before the season, I would have told you I only had Boston and Milwaukee. And then I would have said, Philly, I got to see it. Uh, I've seen it now. They've played great. Uh, they made the James Harden trade early. Uh, they, they avoided any of the distractions weighing them down with that. They got a good return. They have the ability to add to this roster. So 100% I have Philly in that same uh, tier with the Celtics and the Bucks in the East. The West, oh, what a jumbled mess uh, that one is. The Nuggets are still there. I know the Nuggets aren't playing as well this season. I think Denver is kind of in that post-championship hangover of eh, the regular season, just something we got to get through now. We, we know what it takes. It's about being ready to go in April, um, and we'll, we'll be ready to go. So I'm going to have the Nuggets there. I am. Uh, I have come around and bought in on the Timberwolves. I think matchups are going to be really important for them, but I think they could be a team uh, we see go. I think it's maybe a year too early for Oklahoma City. I don't think the Kings defend enough, so I think that's going to keep them a little bit out of the mix. And, Scott, I can't believe I'm doing it, but I'm buying in on the Clippers again. <laughs> you know, Until the uh, injuries hit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm, you know, just they're playing so well. Kawhi Leonard, I know he missed his first game of the season uh, last night, but this is first game of the season, and we're a third of the way in. That's good stuff, right? So we feel pretty good about the way he's playing and the way he's looked. Uh, he's, you know, looks as good as he's looked since winning the title with Toronto. Um, the Harden trade really seems to have worked for them. They've got, you know, good depth. Ty Lu, I think is, uh, the, what I've been saying this whole week is people ask me about the Clippers is I think Ty Lu got to a point where he's like, I, I don't care about hurting guys feelings. If you're not helping us win and you're not, you know, one of, one of the guys who's going to help us get there, you're out. I'm just going to move on and we're going to go in a different direction. I will also say Phoenix. I'm still still in on Phoenix despite the struggles and hanging in there just above 500 um, on the year, but I think that they'll be better eventually. But I I feel less good about them. Uh, and then the Lakers are still a team that you know I, I would consider. And then they're out of completely out of the postseason picture right now, and they're under 500. But the Warriors are still the Warriors. I'm gonna. I've said this over and over. I'm gonna be a year late on the Warriors. Uh, versus a year early, I will believe in them until I probably shouldn't. And then I'm willing to say, all right, I was wrong on them, but I'm just going to trust Steph Curry and that championship pedigree there that, that maybe they get back into this thing. So we're, we're in a spot where, you know, the West has a whole lot of teams. I would favor Denver pretty heavily still, but it would not surprise me if it was any one of those other teams. And that doesn't, I'm not trying to denigrate Dallas or New Orleans or Houston or any of those teams are having good seasons. I just think that they're, you know, maybe a notch or two below uh, those other teams. But I, all those teams have moves they can still make too. So this one may very well be decided by matchups, health, and did a team go all in at the trade deadline? From a pretender standpoint, the Orlando Magic, you know, they're, they're way above 500 right now, five games above 500. And uh, but they've lost the last four. So are they a pretender right now, or are they just, you know, potentially a contender and just hit a road bump right now? Yeah, they're not title contenders. They, they, in no world are they title contenders. They are a good regular season team. They are having the type of season that the Cavs had a year ago, which was they were close the year before to making it in, and then they – this year, they've taken that step, and they're playing really, really well. When they were up you know, second in the East, they were probably playing a little bit above their heads. Um, but I don't see this team dropping you know, all the way out either. I think this is a team where they've, they've 
they, they defend so well, they play so hard that we can really look at it and say, all right, you know, Orlando's going to be in the mix here. Now for them, just stay in the top six, you know, stay in ideally in the top four and host a playoff series, but stay in the top six. That's, that's going to be the real focus because the playing tournament just gets messy. You, you fall down in there and then one loss and your season is over. So I think for them, it could be, all right, let's, you know, really make sure we're, uh, you know, in this top six, we get one of the assured playoff spots and go, but they're, they're not a real title contender. I think the only other team I would say in the East is Miami and why I would say Miami is just, we've seen them do it. We've seen them kind of just put along in the regular season and then the playoffs come and they're a whole different team. So it feels a little different this year with the heat. They, they don't feel quite as good where in prior years it felt like, yeah, I could kind of see it if they got everybody healthy and they really went after it. Um, so we'll see if that develops for this year's team, but the, the other teams, Orlando, New York, Cleveland, those teams are all, you know, enough further off. And then you got like Indiana, Brooklyn, Atlanta, Chicago, Toronto. That's like, that's all just a collection of teams that are probably going to be out in the first round um, of the uh, playing tournament, or maybe, you know, somebody from that group cracks into the postseason. but I don't take them serious as even a team that could win a round in the postseason, just not as they're currently put together. All right, we are right in front of the holidays here. You mentioned the Malik Monk piece that could be coming. What else could we expect, uh, whether it's during the holidays or immediately after the holidays here from you, Keith? Yeah, probably by the time people read this, uh, we'll know if the Pistons made some unfortunate history or not. Um, But the reality is the Detroit Pistons are a mess. Um, So I'm going to kind of dive in and, you know, what what caused this? You know, why is this a mess? Um, you know, where are we at? And then more importantly, how do we get out of this? You know, where do we go from here? So, uh, so we'll dive in to be similar ish to like what I did with the bulls piece, um, you know, a few weeks ago, which, Hey, let's say maybe that's what sparked Chicago to start playing so well. They're, you know, finally moving on. Maybe they're like, Hey, let's go. You know, uh, they're trying to break us up. We, we got to win games here. So I don't believe that at all. Um, but you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe. Um, but I think, um, we're going to get into the Pistons. We're going to do a look at Malik Monk and then the Kings as a whole because uh, they're kind of in a fascinating spot as they're um, in their roster uh, trajectory and roster uh, uh, progression here with them. And then from there, it's going to be a lot of trade deadline focused stuff. We'll have, um, you know, uh, buyers and sellers this year. We're going to have actual real sellers, uh, which is nice to, to, to know. And we're going to have them, you know, a month out from the trade deadline. And then we'll have a whole bunch of stuff on, you know, more on, keep an eye on this and keep an eye on that. And we'll, we'll kind of just keep, keep going as the, uh, uh, you know, we chug towards this big uh, transactional temple of the trade deadline. Well, enjoy your holidays, Keith, take some time off, enjoy it with your family. I appreciate it. Thank you. You too. All right. If you're looking to uh, ask questions, follow Keith Smith on X at Keith Smith NBA, uh, enjoy your holidays and we will be back in 2024 with more NBA content. For Keith Smith, I am Scott Allen. Thanks for listening to the NBA Next Podcast.